You're listening to the Doc Lounge Podcast. This is a place for candid conversations with healthcare industry's top physicians, executives, and thought leaders. This podcast is made possible by Pacific Companies, your trusted advisor in physician recruitment. I am your host, Summer Gilbert, and I am the Director of Marketing and Branding here at Pacific Companies. And my co-hostess with the mostest today is our EVP of Training, you know him well, the one and only Chris Call. Thank you for joining me today, Mr. Chris. Oh, thank you for having me, Summer. Well, Chris, I'm really excited because today uh, we got to talk with Dr. Wyal Sasu. And what an inspiring guy with such a good attitude. He's had such a interesting journey, to say the least. He was born in Lebanon, came to the U.S., um, tells us about his struggles, you know, navigates the journey for us, you know, coming to the U.S., how important the support of his family and his wife was, um, kind of dives into that J-1 visa process. So anyone listening that wants to learn more about that, well, here's your chance, you know, firsthand from uh, someone that has recently done this. Um, So love his attitude and love his take on being a physician and working hard and uh, you know living your dream and your passion so this is a amazing episode so stay tuned to learn more about Dr. Wyal Sassou's journey and just a quick reminder this podcast is intended to be an open forum any personal beliefs views or opinions represented in this episode are that of our guest and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Pacific Companies So please have an open mind and remember that this podcast is not a news source, but rather a safe and neutral platform for candid conversations. Well, today on the podcast, we have Dr. Y.L. Sassou, anesthesiologist, uh, born in Lebanon and now practicing here in the U.S. Uh, Dr. Sassou, what made you want to go into medicine? Thank you for having me for summer. Um, Well, to go into medicine, it was a very... um, multifaceted decision. Uh, I was doing a chemistry major uh, back in Lebanon at the American University of Beirut. And at the time, I was just looking at my options and trying to see what uh, resonates more with me. And out of the options that I had, uh, because I didn't have that many options uh, for graduate studies in chemistry, I decided to do something that that was more, um, you know, with better reach, with uh, better flexibility and uh, Medicine was just one of the suggestions my advisor gave me, and for some reason it just stuck. And uh, that was when I made the very long-term commitment to actually go into medicine. Gotcha. When did you decide what specialty you wanted to be in, and why did you choose it? So towards the end of my um, medical school years, uh, again, I was trying to look at what kind of options I had for specialty. And I was drawn to only a couple of all the specialties. And one of them was uh, ENT or internals and code surgery. And the other one was anesthesia. Um, I ended up picking anesthesia, but then at the time I was thinking about how they're both kind of similar because they both incorporate clinical work, intervention, um, clinical medicine, as well as, you know, hands-on work. Um, and that, that's mostly what drew me to both of them. But then I ended up choosing anesthesia because I felt more relaxed and at ease uh, when I was doing my rotation there. And something about 
the everyday life of an anesthesiologist where you feel like you can fill in multiple roles within the same day. Uh, you act as an internist, you act as a cardiologist, you act as a pulmonary physician, you act as somebody, as a surgeon sometimes when, you, when you're doing procedures. Um, and I felt like it was very versatile, and, and I liked that at the time. So that's what I went for. Dr. Sasu, I noticed on your CV that you did an anesthesia residency in Beirut, and then you came to the States and uh, redid the residency. Could you provide some insight to our listeners as to the differences and why you did two residencies? Well, the reason I came to the U.S. was that I wanted to do some more academic work. So I wanted to be practicing in a place where I could do some research, I could be keeping up with uh, advances in, in the field, and I had some opportunities back in Lebanon, but then they were kind of limited. And uh, at the time, when I finished my residency, I had started working there, uh, and I worked there for two years. Um, but it wasn't as fulfilling as I was hoping it would be, and I figured that I'm still young enough to actually try and go and, uh, you know, explore other options. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the U.S. was naturally uh, one of the top options I had. The problem is, even if you finish residency and you practice in another country, you you can't really just come over here and start practicing. For the most part, except for a few exceptions, uh, you will need to do the residency again to get both certified and to get licensed to work in the U.S. So that's where I am right now. Actually, I'm uh, I'm st- I'm finishing up residency for the second time in anesthesia and uh, in hopes of just working as a staff. Now, since you completed that residency, did that make you a more attractive candidate uh, to the programs here that you're applying to since you already had experience in anesthesia in another country? Surprisingly enough, for the most part, no, because the way the application process works is you submit an application and they ask you for a few important dates, one of which is when did you graduate medical school? For me, I graduated medical school a while ago, so that was 2008. Mm-hmm. From 2008 to 2012, I was an anesthesia resident, and then 12 to 14, I was working there as a staff. But on my application, it says 2008 was my year of graduation. So at first glance, it looks like I've been out of medical school for however many years. And programs don't really like that. They like fresh graduates because they're still young. They're still, they still have the, the knowledge fresh in their minds uh, before they start with specialty. And uh, any gap years in the middle are, I don't want to say frowned upon, but they're just not the norm. And unless somebody takes care to look into your CV and see what you were doing in those years, this kind of works against you. And most of the programs will be getting a lot more applicants than they have positions. So that first uh, filtration uh, part will be automatic. So some programs will actually set limits. We don't want um, medicine graduates that graduated, say, more than three years ago, regardless, losing some uh, potential applicants to that. So would you advise future applicants to residency programs in the U.S. to forego training in their home country and just apply here in the U.S. for just the one residency? That is a, that's a very personal decision, but I would say to someone who knows they will end up practicing in the U.S. and who knows that that's their ultimate goal, 
then yes, finish medical school, start applying from, from your home country, and go for it. Um, in my case, that wasn't the plan all along. I started working uh, at home, and then I decided that I wanted something uh, different. So I had to go through the motions of uh, applying again and doing a second residency. Yeah. As an established physician now, what advice would you give someone who's getting ready to choose a specialty? Choosing a specialty should never be about how much money you think you're going to make or what kind of um, daily schedule you think you're going to have or how many vacation days or, you know, all that thing. Um, Choosing a specialty has to resonate with you as a person. This is something you're going to end up doing every day of your life until you retire. And if you're not comfortable with it, if you don't actually like it, not just tolerate it, you have to like it to be successful at it and to be happy with it. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how much money you're making. If you're not happy with how you're making it, it, it you don't get the joy of the experience. Yeah. And you're always going to be learning. You're always going to be studying new things. Um, advances in, in any field are going to come in while you're training and while you're working. So, you will never feel like you're done with the training and you're just, unless you just go do some private practice somewhere that doesn't matter, doesn't, um, emphasize keeping up with the, um, with the advances and that's pretty much nowhere. Yeah. Um, so, so if somebody's planning on picking a, a specialty, they really have to, my advice at least, I would say, go see how the residents are living, go see how the attendings are living. Um, see what kind of cases they do, how is their normal everyday life, how is their family life, how is everything. So see if that can work into your life and see how if you can incorporate that into your um, daily routine. What do you like least and most about anesthesiology? Um, least is waking up so early in the morning. I am not much of a morning person, but you have to be there in the morning. You have to be there before the surgeons are there. Well, the surgeons are, are there doing something else, but you're in the operating room first. Mm-hmm. Um, and for someone who's not a morning person, that's not the most exciting part of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, every you will not find a specialty that's all pros. Everything has pros and cons. Um, as a specialty, anesthesia is a lot more forgiving in terms of um, call schedules and vacations and all that. Everybody will be working on some holiday or some weekend or some weekday at night. That that will happen. But for the most part, um, once you're a staff member, typically there's only one person who's on call at night. So everybody has to go home, leave their work behind, come back the next day fresh. And that's great about anesthesia um, in terms of convenience. Another really good thing is something we already talked about. And it's how versatile you feel as a physician, where you can be someone who's um, treating a heart condition one minute and then a lung condition the other minute, then putting in invasive lines or using sophisticated monitors or doing any of that, Uh, monitoring the brain, monitoring uh, circulation. All of that comes within your job description as an anesthesiologist. And um, it's... We cover operating room, intensive care unit, pediatrics, adults. Um, it makes you feel like you're, you are a valuable, um, addition to the institution because you can help in so many places. 
uh, when they call for a code, there's always an anesthesiologist or somebody right. from anesthesia. Uh, when they, when somebody has trouble putting an IV in, somebody from anesthesia can help. You know, you feel like you can, you can be helpful in more than one scenario. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say anything bad about other specialties. It's just that one of the things that drew me personally to the, to the specialty. Right. I'd like to switch gears a little bit and having moved here from Lebanon, you know, several years back that maybe you could discuss the challenges you faced moving here uh, financially, emotionally, personally, a lot of those things that, you know, our foreign docs are coming to a new country and, and all those things that you have faced. Well, Lebanon is almost half a globe away from, from the U.S. So it, it's a big move. It's not, I mean, Sometimes you move from one city to the other within the same state, and you feel like that was a big decision. Uh, think about moving everything from one country to the other, and a country that's that's rather far. Um, so it's it's a as a volume, it's it's a big volume decision. It's something you have to really consider, and it's never just you. If you're married, you have uh, or you have a spouse or a significant other that affects them as well. Your, your, your own side of the family, your parents, your siblings. Uh, if you have kids, that's going to affect them. Uh, your spouses, uh, or significant others' family also affects them. Uh, because you will be far. I mean, it's not, it won't be practical anymore. It, you won't be able to visit people whenever you want to. Uh, in my case, my entire family, my entire side of the family is back in Lebanon. And they're still there now. Um, so, my only contact with them is just a a phone call uh, once or twice a week or, say, a, a video call or something like that. Mm-hmm. And anybody coming in from, from a foreign country will have to deal with one form or another of, of a visa. And that gets complicated um, because sometimes you feel like it may not be easy to renew your visa if you leave the country. So sometimes you have to be stuck here for a while, which happened to me, actually. Mm-hmm. So I've been here for five years now. I haven't visited my home country in five years. And, yeah, and it's it's just for the fear of something going wrong uh, that I have no control over. And if I, if I were to go and get stuck for, say, three weeks or four weeks or a couple of months, my residency and everything I've worked for is going to be jeopardized. So you have to look at pros and cons for that. Um, At the same time, things are happening. Life events are happening back home. Um, You have weddings, you have deaths, you have births, you have everything going on in the family and you're not there. So also Mm -hmm. think about that. Everybody who immigrates will say, oh, I'm just going to go for a couple of years and come back. Don't take it for granted because you never know how that works out. Eventually, things work out, but uh, there's always a, a cost for all of this. And also, on the other on, on the other side of this, why are you moving to the to a different country, regardless what country it is? If you're moving to better yourself, to um, you know, improve your education, your your, your your footprint in this world, then then it may be worth it for you. So if you think it is, go ahead and do it. How did your family feel about you making the decision to leave your country and come over here? Well, they weren't happy about the decision 
because we they knew we were going to be separated for an indefinite amount of time. They didn't know when I was going back. Mm-hmm. And they certainly expected me to go back sooner than now. Uh, but they knew why I was doing it, and they were very supportive. Um, I'm lucky to come from a family that supports education on all levels. And they knew that this was, for me personally, this is a better choice than staying back home. And they supported it wholeheartedly. Um, but, uh, so that, that was brain talk, but then emotional talk was, oh, you're going to go, we're not going to see you for a while, you know. Um, so they, they, they had some mixed feelings about it, but they, they did support it. What about financially? I'm sure you're doing fairly well over there as a practicing physician when you came to the States. Walk us through some of the challenges you faced uh, in your financial pocketbook. Uh, financially, was this was probably next to not seeing my family for five years. This was the one of the biggest struggles uh, I've had coming here. Um, I got married before I came here um, uh, a couple of years before. Uh, that was when I started working. And when, you, when you're when newlyweds, uh, you start working, most of your income is going to go towards either paying back loans or starting a house, starting a family and all that. So by the time we made the decision to come here, uh, we were almost back to square one financially. And that was a big hit to us because starting here from square one, is not easy. You have no credit history. You have no bank accounts. You have no proof of previous payments. You have nothing that financial institutions can go off of. So you start with very limited uh, income, whatever income you're getting from uh, your residency, if you matched, or uh, anything else that you're coming in for. Um, I remember my first bank account um, accepted a credit card application for me, and it was one of those secure cards where you have to put in the money before you can get the credit card. Uh-huh. And my credit limit was $500. <laughs> You're a doctor. <laughs> yeah. And and so that was my means at the time. So this, this is the maximum I could use on a credit card for a pretty decent amount of time. Um, that plus uh, the fact that I came in um, – so I came in and I did uh, – two fellowships before I matched into residency. And fellowship and residency salaries are not really, they're not something you can live comfortably out of, especially if you're a family. Um, so eventually uh, you start accumulating credit card debt and mm-hmm. you can't get personal loans because you're not a citizen. So personal loans are almost impossible to get if you're not a citizen. Um, can't really get uh, big mortgages or you can't. So I, I ended up renting. I've been renting since I came here anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, with time, uh, with very meticulous financial planning, I managed to keep my payments up to date. So my, my credit balance kept improving. My credit limits kept improving. Uh-huh. Um, but with improving credit limits, you accumulate more credit card debt. And right. the equivalent of this for U.S. graduates is their medical student loans. Nobody graduates from residency without at least a couple hundred thousand in medical student loans, which is a different story because that can be repaid in different ways. In my case, it's pure credit card debt, which if your medical student loans are in the, say, 
anywhere between five to fifteen percent interest. Credit mm-hmm. cards start at twenty or so. Oh, wow. um, so you, the interest I was paying on my credit cards up until last month was staggering. Was was a huge amount. So you live in this con- uh, continuous um, fear of of this this financial impact that that you're you're trying to absorb. Mm-hmm. And you're not in attending it. Once you're in attending, you say, well, things are going to be fine. I'm going to pay it back. Right. But until then, it gets really rough. So throughout those years, um, about a year and a half ago, uh, I managed to find the one institution I could find that provided loans to foreign graduates. And uh, I can leave some information about that um, in the show notes. So I used them to get personal loans so I could pay back my credit cards and try to lower my my interest bracket. Mm-hmm. And it helped for a little bit, but again, you're limited on how much you can you can get. And about a month or two ago, I found the other the only other institution I know of that also supports uh, foreign graduates, and this one's specifically for doctors. Um, and it's it's formed by doctors, and they just launched, I think, last month. And uh, I got in touch with them, and I actually managed to get enough of a loan to pay back all my credit cards. And now I'm just have I have one payment towards that loan, which is about half the interest rate that I used to pay for my credit cards, which is a big deal. Wow. Uh, and that also I can leave some uh, some information about. Yeah, that's incredible. So now. What I'm doing is I'm trying to sustain myself until I finish residency. And then once I start working as an attending, as a staff member, then the actual salary that I've been waiting for for the past, I don't know how many years, will come in. And then I will start paying back my loans. And then uh, I can start thinking of, you know, upgrading my lifestyle. But my advice to, to people trying to come in is, as soon as you get that higher bracket income, slow down. Don't overthink it. Don't start just buying things left and right because think about all you've been through to get there and try to get there responsibly. Mm-hmm. In my case, what, what I'm planning to do is make sure I zero out all my loans, any credit card debt that I have, and then gradually upgrade my, my lifestyle. And there's... There are a lot of podcasts and uh, blogs about this, about um, responsible spending when you when your income changes dramatically within a month. Um, and I think it's something people should think about. Yeah, that's something that a lot of the physicians that we've had on the podcast so far have expressed um, the importance of living off residency salary after you're done with school to really get yourself caught up with debt. But I really didn't realize how hard it was for foreign graduates to come here and get loans. So I will link all this information that you shared with us and uh, so that anyone listening would benefit from it can you know, find that information easily. So thank you for sharing that. But circling back a little bit, how did your wife feel about coming to the U.S.? And what is she doing right now for work? Here's the other story. Okay. Um, so my wife, when I was training to, um, when I was training in medical school, my wife was training in nursing school. And by the time I finished and we got married, 
she had had her nursing degree and a master's degree, and she was working in a critical care unit back at home. Um, while I was tasked, uh, she moved from her hospital to mine, and she was the, the director of nursing in that uh, hospital. It was a community hospital. Mm-hmm. And when we started considering coming here, we looked at, you know, the general um, demand for nurses, and it was, as it is today, there was a lot of demand. So we figured it should be easy for her to get a job as soon as we move in, and that should offset whatever expenses I would have in terms of applying for residency, which is a whole budget by itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so we move in, and she couldn't get a job. Even though she already passed her exams, she got her license to work in three different states. For some reason, it was very difficult for hospitals to offer her a job Um because she was uh, a foreign graduate, although she graduated from an American university. The reasoning they gave us was that for her to get a job, she needs to apply for her own visa, uh, basically an H-1 visa, which is what some residents go for. So it's essentially the same process, but the institutions we were asking were maybe not used to the process or maybe they didn't have a proper mechanism to deal with it. Uh, so she ended up applying for a, a large amount of jobs and getting denied every time just because somebody didn't want to deal with the process, which wouldn't have taken that much, but it just wouldn't work. And and those were some big-name hospitals. It wasn't the small community hospitals here. Yeah, how frustrating. <laughs> to say the least. So after that, uh, basically, we decided that Forget about this for a little bit because, you know, applying for jobs and not getting them is frustrating in itself, forgetting about the missed income. Um, mm-hmm. So just to save our sanity a little bit, we decided not to apply anymore. And I'm almost done with residency. And once I start working, um, my visa status should be changed. And uh, by then, I'll get a work permit. She'll get, she gets a work permit and things should be good. What what visa status are you on, and then walk through our, our listeners what you need to go through to secure a position? Okay. Uh, residents uh, or residency applicants typically get one of two visas, either a J-1 or an H-1, and that depends on a lot of things, including the uh, willingness of the program to sponsor one or the other. Uh, if you're on a J visa, uh, it has some stipulations where you have to either go back to your home country for a number of years or um, get a faculty position in an underserved area in the U.S. for a number of years. If you do an H-1 visa, um, you don't have that stipulation, but an H-1 visa is is typically more expensive to get. Either way, you have to go through your residency program to get it. When I first came in, uh, I came through the Cleveland Clinic. I had a a two-year research fellowship there. Mm-hmm. And then I did a, a year of neuroanesthesia fellowship. Um, so through the Cleveland Clinic, I had the H-1 visa. Once I finished uh, from there and I matched in Michigan, uh, my program uh, did not uh, support the H-1 visas anymore. So I had to downgrade to a J-1. And because of the whole visa issue and the, the travel limitations and all that, I wanted to see if I had any other options besides the J-1. 
And um, I found out another option to, instead of downgrading to the J-1, I could get an O-1 visa. And this visa is uh, granted to um, people who have uh, some extra input into the field. So, for example, I had my two years of uh, research uh, at the Queen Clinic, and during those years, um, I managed to um, first author a couple of uh, publications and, and big journals. Uh, I had a couple of news articles about me. Uh, you know, when you when you contribute to the field in a way that makes you kind of stand out, you become eligible for a visa like that. Mm-hmm. And so I chose to go for it. And um, my program uh, helped me find an attorney who's done this before for the program. Uh, so I got in touch with her, and uh, we applied. And it's it's a it's a bit of a rigorous process, but luckily enough, I managed to get it. So I've been on an O visa since I started residency. Mm-hmm. The the good thing about it is that you avoid going to a J one with all the stipulations. The bad thing is programs don't sponsor these visas, so you have to pay for it. Okay. Meaning you have to pay for the visa itself and for the attorney. And this could run you several thousand dollars. Um, and for one reason or another, um, I had to renew it every year. So I was paying several thousand dollars per year just for my visa. Wow. Uh, which added another complexity to, to the scenario. Right. Um, but it is an option. So if you have the means and you have the qualifications for it, um, I would go for that instead of going to a J. And programs, in theory, shouldn't have a problem with it because it doesn't affect um, your application as a resident. Mm-hmm. Um, but some programs will not be able to sponsor your H-1 uh, simply because they, they don't do it. Now, will that affect your ability to secure a position uh, after the completion of your training? No. So the, the O-1 is very similar to an H-1. Um, it's just it has different uh, qualifications to it, and uh, you can go from an O to a green card uh, based on your employment. Okay. And for our listeners out there, could you explain the EAD and how that works into the process? I believe it's uh, – I'm not certain about the details, but I believe it's very similar to the to the H1, if I'm not mistaken. So it's – the. Your status as a as a visa holder is very uh, similar to an H one, mm-hmm. and your upgrade from that to a, to a green card should be similar as well. Unless when you're upgrading to a green card, you're upgrading as part of a um, employment or a national interest waiver, or the, the processes will differ. And I'm not very experienced with those, uh, but that would be a good time to get a lawyer. Yeah, good advice. Reflecting back, um, you've told us about, you know, a lot about your journey so far. Was it worth it coming to the U.S.? And uh, would you make the same decision if you had to go back in time? It's been many years, but I think I still have to wait because I'm not done yet. Uh, would I do it again? I kind of did it again. And uh, because yeah. within medicine, this, to me, I'm convinced that this is the best option. Uh, for me. So if I had to go back all the way to medical school, I probably would not because, I mean, because of all the, all the hardships, uh, you'd rather do something that's a little bit quicker 
um, that's uh, that helps you enjoy your younger years because mm-hmm. if I think about when I started, I started uh, college at 17 and now I'm 35 and I'm wow. still kind of in, in my, um, you know, learning student chair and I'm not, I'm not out of it yet, even though I had that two year break in the middle where I was deaf. Um, but during those two years, I was studying for, for my, uh, USMLEs. And so it, I was always, uh, the student or the trainee and I still am. And that's, yeah. that's, a that's a long-term commitment that, um, is definitely worth it at the end. But if you see it that way, when you're starting and if you know, you've, you're going to go through certain hardships and this applies to some people, maybe not everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, I may or may not choose to do this whole thing again. Because at the time when I, before going into medical school and during my college years, I was doing, uh, I was a major in chemistry and I had a lot of interest in chemistry and in uh, computers. So I did a minor in computer science. I had a lot of branching interests that I had to forego just for the sake of medicine. So you drop something, you pick something up, um, but if I were to go back to my college years, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But I can't say for sure. But within medicine, definitely, uh, I'm happy with my choice of uh, specialty. Well, hearing your story, what dedication that you have put into your career so far. And I guarantee once you are done with all of this process and established and working, um, you're going to have an, a different appreciation for being a physician than many others would. I believe you. It's um, I've had a glimpse of it back home, uh, but here is definitely on a different level. Yeah, that's really inspiring to hear. Um, I'm 35 too, and if we look at both of our lives and where we've been, we're a world away in experiences and uh, what we're going through. But it looks like, I mean, from where you've been, it's all about your mindset um, and just how you, your outlook on the entire situation. You will have a lot of setbacks on the way, uh, whether it's financial, whether it's uh, personal relationships, families. Um, if you're not, if you're doing this alone, it, it will not be good. Uh, mm-hmm. If you're doing this with someone who deeply cares about you and about your goals and whose mindset is aligned with yours, that can be a very big source of support. Uh, without my wife being so understanding, I would not be here. I wouldn't yeah. be able to do all of this. It's, um, it's a lot of delayed gratification. I always mm-hmm. use that word, and I, I mean it every time. It's You know where you're headed. You just It takes so long that... Sometimes you lose track of your target, but you shouldn't. Yeah. Because if you're doing this, you're doing it for a reason, and uh, you have you have your reasons why you were drawn to this whole uh, career line in the first place. Um, mm-hmm. For me, I just wanted something that I felt comfortable doing, that I felt useful doing, and that would provide me with a proper lifestyle for me and my my family uh, in the future. 
Mm-hmm. And I still believe that this will get me there. It's just that it takes a lot longer than the average um, other career line. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Hearing you talk, I've kind of been inspired because you talk a lot about your wife. And a really interesting episode um, would be to have a significant other's um, opinion and experience of, um, you know, being married to a physician and uh, maybe one in training, established physician, one like you, um, you know, coming from another country. So, um, you know, thank you so much. I mean, it, it sounds like uh, she's a big support and a big part of your life and a part of your success. And uh, I would love to have your, you know, wife on and, uh, you know, just hear her side of the story and uh, her side of the journey. Well, we can't thank you enough for spending time with us today on the Doc Lounge podcast. And we would love to have you back on for round two uh, in the future and uh, possibly even having your wife on. Any final words before we say goodbye? Anybody who chooses medicine, no matter what specialty they go for, they will be doing a lot and they will be sacrificing a lot and they will have a lot of nights away from home, uh, a lot of sleepless nights, whether they're studying for something or they're on overnight call or they're doing a specifically difficult case. It It is rewarding in itself um, to the person and to their immediate surroundings. Um, so they should never feel that these efforts are going for nothing. And mm-hmm. even though there's suffering involved, and I'm not using the word lightly, there, there is suffering involved. But uh, at the end of the day, you feel like you're doing something that's worth that suffering and you feel like if you help one person every day with something uh, if you make a difference in somebody's health that's that's already gratifying enough and your family members will be going through this whole thing with you so it's not just you always look at who's with you who's who's uh taking this burden with you and be um grateful towards them um because it's not easy to be around us as trainees. Uh, it's, it's, uh, I can tell that it's difficult. So kudos to everyone. Well, amen to that. What great final words to go out with. So thank you so much again for your time. We appreciate you. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. No problem. Thank you. Bye. Thank you to all our listeners. If you'd like to be notified when new episodes air, make sure to hit that subscribe button. And thank you to Pacific Companies. Without you guys, this podcast would not be possible. If you'd like to be a guest or for more information, go to www.pacificcompanies.com.